I have always loved children, their innocence and playfulness, ability to love unconditionally, and ease at being optimally mindful in moments. Before I became a parent, I doted on children of family and friends, and I've got a work history of supporting young Kiwis and their families through challenging times. This work exposed me to the distressing hardship that unfortunately many young New Zealanders face, but also provided hope in the dedication I witnessed from whānau and health workers. However, these feelings pale in comparison to the emotion I now experience since becoming a mother. I am often unable to listen through an entire news article or radio interview that discusses abuse against children and have tears brought to my eyes when I think of the number of families living in emergency housing. I feel overwhelmingly grateful and lucky that my girls are getting to grow and develop in a stable, warm and caring home environment. The current government have pledged that they want New Zealand to be the best place in the world for children and young people. They have produced a child and youth wellbeing strategy that sets out a shared understanding of what children and young people need and want in order to be well and what we can and should be doing in order to support them. It's being formed to guide our government in improving the well-being of all children in Aotearoa. As a parent and psychologist, I can honestly say, however, though, that I am confused on where we currently sit on that pledge's journey. This is what I know to be true. We have the highest youth suicide rate in the OECD. 235,000 children, or 20.8% of our children here in New Zealand, currently live in low-income households. 69% of the children in state care are Māori, and our Māori babies are five times more likely for uplift at birth. On the other hand, what do the governments say that they have achieved to date in this pledge? They talk about extending paid parental leave from 18 to 26 weeks, boosting the income of 384,000 families by $75 a week, expanding free lunches in schools, helping families with the best start payment, giving almost every state school one-off capital funding injections of $400,000, and extending free doctor's visits for up to 13-year-olds. This topic, children's well-being, is a big and important one. And it's a discussion I wanted to have with someone who had knowledgeable insight and accessible facts, rather than just feelings. I'm honoured to welcome the Children's Commissioner, Judge Andrew Beecroft, to this episode of Mindgrew. And I'm hopeful that he can help both you and I clarify that very important question. Are we... Aotearoa, progressing to become the best place in the world for children and young people to grow and develop. As the notable Dame Fina Cooper once said, take care of our children, take care of what they hear, take care of what they see, take care of what they feel, for how the children grow, so will be the shape of Aotearoa. I'm Jackie McGuire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. 
I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? It means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy to understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimise personal well-being, work and relationships. Put simply, MindBrew has been created to help people live the good life. Judge Beecroft, thank you so much for joining me on MindBrew. You are an extremely uh, in-demand man, I imagine, so thank you very much for your time. You're and uh, glad to be with you, Jackie. You know, I thought we should start very broad before we tunnel down, which is, Judge Beecroft, what do you do? What actually is the Children's Commissioner? What falls under your remit? Why do you get up every morning? Let's start there. Well, under-18s are defined as children internationally. That's our definition. And there are 1.1 million under-18-year-olds in New Zealand. 23% of the population. It's a big group, certainly without a vote, often without a voice. And my remit is to be their advocate, their watchdog, and to listen carefully to what they say and to ensure that their voices and their views are heard by those who are making decisions and policy about them. Any issue regarding the welfare of children in New Zealand is on the table. And we have a specific mandate to monitor and assess the policies and practices of Oranga Tamariki. Mm-hmm. Now, people ask, why do I go on so much about Oranga Tamariki? Because that's our statutory role. Mm-hmm. So we have an office of about now 40, 12 when I arrived. Roughly about half of the office is involved with that monitoring of Oranga Tamariki, about 12 full-time staff looking at that. And the other big department of the office is the advocacy and the watchdog and the policy for children as a whole. And I get up in the morning willingly with enthusiasm. What a terrific role. What a wonderful opportunity. Comes with a burden, but also a responsibility. And I'll never get this chance again. And as long as I and people in the office have life and breath, we will be committed to ensuring that children's perspectives, rights and views are heard and our front and centre. And so just to be very clear for our listeners, that means that your role is independent of whoever sits in government at time. Absolutely. I am appointed in the end by the Governor-General to be an utterly independent watchdog, although our office is funded by the government. I am, as an independent Crown entity in my own right, totally free to call it as I see it and to, in the best sense, speak truth to power. So in terms of having influential power over real changes that may make real differences for our children, for our tamariki here in New Zealand, how does that relationship work between your independent office as the Children's Commissioner and, of course, having to, I imagine, work in partnership with government who have the power to implement the shifts or changes that may be needed? Yeah, it's a tightrope. It's a tightrope to to have the confidence of the community and civil society and NGOs for them to know that they have in this office a trusted advocate who won't shrink from challenging and saying 
the necessary and important things in public, but also working, as you say, constructively with government. Now, that's that's a tension because governments much prefer behind-the-scenes collegial work. But we're very clear. We have a no-surprises policy. The government always knows what we're going to say. I mean, if we're talking about abolishing um, the the right for adults to smoke in cars where there are children. Mm. Well, we signalled that very clearly. The government knew of our advocates and our campaign, but we worked really well with the Minister of Health and the Ministry of Health Mm. to help bring about that change. When we talk about child poverty, I mean, we were really keen to see a Child Poverty Act, a piece of law that had obligations on the government. I mean, a lot of that was actually done behind the scenes. Mm. But equally, we campaigned hard for 17-year-olds to be included in the youth justice system. Mm. So the issue itself sometimes determines the degree to which we're both a public loud and proud advocate and the degree to which we're working constructively behind the scenes. It's both and. Mm. And I guess the mark of getting it right is that Everybody's a little uncomfortable at times by what we say and how we say it Mm. because there is a tension point and that's the role of an advocate. So, Andrew, I suppose with my judge, shall I call you, they can edit that out, Judge Beecroft. Andrew's fine, Andrew's fine. (laughs) In In my role as a psychologist with my mental health and wellbeing hat on, I look at your website, I look at the mission statements there which is the focus of the children's commissioner is to ensure it's a place where all children can thrive uh, the goal is that it's you know the best place in the world for a child to grow up without poverty or disadvantage etc and I, I hold those statements in one hand I take my personal experience working with young people and families in New Zealand uh, and and the crisis I think we are in from a mental health service perspective. I look at the fact we have the highest youth suicide rates in the OECD, that 20% of our young people live in low household incomes, uh, that 69% of our children who are in state care are Māori when only 16.5% of the population are Māori. I look at all those stats and I think I would love to hear your view on where you think the state of the nation is in terms of where our our youth well-being really sits and how we're stacking up to that goal. Yeah, there are many ways to answer that question, but the starting point for me is to say that the mental well-being of our children, of our under-18-year-olds, is, I think, fast becoming the defining issue of our time. Children know a lot about the issue and compared to my day, I'm talking the 60s and 70s at school, they are much more prepared to talk about it Mm. and discuss it. I think it's much more front and centre and it's a much more real issue for them. I mean, the Youth 2019 survey showed that 23%, nearly a quarter of young people reported symptoms of depression. Mm. That was doubled, really, in mm. 10 years. Now, mm. that is that is a very significant wake-up call for our us, mm. or our, for our whole country. And I'm often asked, well, how well are our children doing? Another way of saying it is to break it down into three percentages. And this is a bit crude, but I think remarkably helpful. 70% are in, are in environments of advantage and 
privilege and, mm. and do well. 20% struggle with disadvantage mm. in and out of real issues. 10% are in chronic, permanent, now intergenerational disadvantage. And that's 70 20 10. That certainly wasn't the breakdown when I was growing up. We now know much more. Is that, can I just ask, is that almost a loss of middle New Zealand in terms of those stats? You're doing really well, all things are really hard? Yeah, I think that's one way of saying it. It's a little of a crude measure, and for mental well-being, it's not altogether uh, as easy as that. But I would say in terms of 70% doing well and living in advantage, 20% struggling, 10% in chronic disadvantage, that those figures, I guess, provide the basis for resilience and risk. Mm. I mean, those who are in families that are prospering and doing well, I mean, there is much greater opportunity to build resilience against uh, mental uh, distress and mental ill health. For those who are in the 20% and the 10%, it's not determinative, but the risk of poor life outcomes, including poor mental health outcomes, is much greater. Mm. And I think the starting point is to say it is the big issue of our time and that 702010 is a good starting point to understand how bad it is. But I think it's not. I mean, there are those in the 70% who have real mental health issues, mm. those in the 10% who don't. But we do know that that analysis is the basis for understanding resilience and risk. But we know from both our surveys, you know, we had, a, we had one called The Good Life, asking children what mm. well-being meant. And the government wanted us to do that for its child and youth well-being strategy. Well, there, only 63% could agree or strongly agree that they could cope when life gets hard. Mm. Only, you know, it's really only 60%, mm. you know, just less than two-thirds. Mm. Which went down, I read, during COVID for the, for the adolescents. Our same COVID summary showed it went down, yeah, so, so COVID made whatever was going on worse. And I think that you're, you're right. I think there is something of a crisis mm. with our mental health and well-being. Children and young people know it. In fact, our office, we are prioritising for the years ahead. One of the big key three areas for us will be advocating for improved well-being mm. for all our children, all our mokapuna, at all stages of their mm. life journey. That's what we're hearing from children and young people. That is what they want us to prioritise, and we will. And that's very much in line with uh, Professor Richie Poulton. He came out last year with the uh, Otago Longitudinal Dunedin Studies talking about, you know, those uh, rates of mental illness in our young people doubling or trebling in the last 10 years, yes. as you say, and he called it an epidemic uh, or a pandemic here in New Zealand. And, in fact, if I take his words, he says, youth mental health is a pandemic and it needs as much, if not more, attention than COVID. And he said that will be hard for some people to swallow. But as you're saying, it's a, it's a defining issue uh, of this period of time and one that needs serious consideration. And I'd be so keen to hear in terms of your office going in the next few years, children's wellbeing is, is one of our major priorities. We really want to see shift and change in that. When you come yeah. down to the reality, how do you see that change actually materialising? And I think within wellbeing, the mental health and mental wellbeing of children and young people, that is an absolute key priority. Everything Richie Poulton says, 
I find as I travel around our country is exactly backed up and proved, mm. proof in the pudding. That's what children and people talk about. I remember going to a North Island town and asking a group of year 13-year-olds, what are your big issues? There was a big pause and they said, you know, to be honest, it's mental health and mm. suicide in mm. our area. And I mean, that's a huge wake-up call for us all and children are saying that. And within that, as you said, the Māori youth suicide rate is nearly three times as high as the non-Māori rate. Mm. And that's absolutely unacceptable in mm. a civilised country like New Zealand. Mm. So with, with that in mind, when you said what does that look like for us, I guess for me, a really helpful way to understand a child's life is to say there are four legs, four domains, four legs of a chair that need to be functioning well and that breeds and develops good mental well-being. One is home and whānau, where children say they are loved and accepted for who they are. That's one leg. Mm -hmm. School, where they feel respected and understood and they help to learn in a way that best suits them. They want to have friends who accept them for who they are, friends who they can rely on. That's the third leg. So we've got home, school, friends, and they want to feel connected. They want to feel connected to their community, and community is the last leg. Mm. When I was in the youth court, I often saw children whose four legs were in dire shape. I mean, the chair was very rickety, if not collapsed, where home wasn't a place of love and security and safety, mm. where school was completely alien. There'd been disengagement from school where there was a minimal amount of friends who could provide any support and really no meaningful connections with the community. So I think we will be prioritising that sort of approach in those areas. And there's a real opportunity with the government's uh, mental health and wellbeing strategy, mm. which I think is a bit short, to be honest, mm. on the perspectives of children and young people, a real opportunity for all of us to really advocate strongly to insist that the Ministry of Health's response really takes child and youth mental well-being seriously. So we've got a number of fronts that we want to operate on and a number of opportunities. But if we're true to hearing children's voices and children's concerns, wherever I go, that's one of the big three or one of the big five. It's interesting. In prepping for this conversation, Andrew, I put the question out to the clinical site community, which was, I'm speaking to the Children's Commissioner, does anyone have any thoughts of interest? And one of the questions that came back to me in response to what you're saying is, in 2019, we had $1.9 billion in the budget for mental health. Last year, there was another $40 million for mental health and AOD funding, alcohol and other drugs. Do you have an opinion, Judge Beecroft, on where's this money gone? Have you seen it being used? Has that been making an impact on children and young people? Because I think, unfortunately, uh, the despair or uh, the loss of hope in the clinical community is quite high at the moment. Yeah, I hear that. I hear from families who find it with children and young people who find it hard to access clinical services, mental health services, where, where the appointment times, I've spoken to families recently, having to wait a month or two months to get help where there are issues of 
wouldn't call it dire crisis mental mm. health, but deep issues of anxiety and worry and depression. It's taking, you know, up to two months to get an appointment. Mm. And I think that as in many areas in New Zealand, you know, we talk a good game about mm. children and people, but they do tend to get lost in the wash a little. Mm. And our, our policies and our funding have to be much more explicit and much more dedicated towards ensuring the needs of children and young people are met. I mean, they don't vote. They have very little voice. I think all that we hear is that there hasn't been any huge improvement in getting access to the services that are necessary. Crisis is a different situation, and you'd hope that crisis and SOS will meet with an emergency response. Mm. Those who are struggling with issues that can be pretty debilitating, we still hear it's hard to get access. It takes a and, long time. And my my hope is, uh, in my realistic, optimistic way of looking at life, is that we don't want to just be waiting for people to be in crisis because if that's our strategy, we're, we're coming about you know we're coming about it from the wrong end. Actually, how do we flip this and be proactive and preventative? How do we take a full you know, lifelong approach where we're, you know, a life course perspective in this, where we're actually going, how do we start with maternal mental health? How do we start, you know, with with babies in the womb and ensuring they are coming into a very supportive environment with a mother that as well um, in terms of their attachment? And then how do we support them growing up so we're not just looking at crisis management? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. In fact, Sir Peter Gluckman, we were at a breakfast recently at Parliament, and he said the single biggest determinant now of good life outcomes for children is the mental health of the mother during pregnancy, mm-hmm. the single biggest predictor, best predictor. He said it's a no-brainer what we should be doing. We should be doing all we can to support and improve the mental health and mental well-being of pregnant mothers. Mm. That will have a huge downstream effect. And, I mean, that, assuming, I mean, we trust the former chief science advisor, that is a massive statement. H- and huge. there's huge, huge implications there for policy. And interesting because it's it's been in the last two weeks, three weeks, that we have seen a number of protests happen at government lately. I've had you know, upting a dozen calls from the media recently asking me about maternal mental health, the support that's in place, uh, mm. the, the depth of our services, the fact that uh, suicide is the number one cause of death in, in, uh, in new mothers, antenatal mm. and postnatal. And again, I suppose I'm really interested to go, has the Children's Commissioner's Office got any practical ideas about what we should be doing differently? What can we be trying, doing, policy-making to try and shift this? Yeah, we we gave a significant, I felt, significant submission to the government's uh, inquiry group into mental health and wellbeing. And I think we made pretty clear that, at least in the general sense, prioritising children's rights, interests and views. But practically, we said there's got to be ways of prioritising Kamariki and Rangatahi Māori children and young people who are facing the biggest mental health issues and LGBTQIA in particular. Uh, children are telling us all the time that feeling excluded, marginalised and bullied. So the practical answer to your question is how can we ensure better access 
for Māori. Now, in this field, there is a strong and current cry for a, a by Māori for Māori delivery system. And the new mental health commission that's about to be, I think, launched next week. I mean, that's front and centre for them. And I think so it should be. But in many ways, I think for the Māori community, there has been a reluctance and a suspicion to access services that are seen as not culturally appropriate. Practically, that has to change. And I think the, the Bi Māori, For Māori movement is growing in strength across the board, not just in mental health or health, but in education and in justice and in care and protection services. And I think one practical thing is to grow or to put resources in so that we can grow Bi Māori, For Māori approaches to mental health and Bi Māori, For Māori interventions and to increase and to better encourage access because it just isn't happening at the moment. It could happen much more. I absolutely acknowledge that for the Māori community, maternal wellbeing, uplifts for, regarding oranga tamariki, that need for a really good start to life is very uh, prevalent and important in maternal wellbeing and maternal mental health. I also think uh, in general... Uh, it's maternal well-being and our issues in that space are not defined just to the Māori population. I think that is New Zealand-wide. New Zealand wide. Um, I think at the other end of the spectrum, you potentially have a group of women, for example, that have been, you know, highly successful business owners or workers and then they go and have children and their world completely shifts and changes and they've always been copers and no one spots their signs of concern and their women that struggle hugely with depression or anxiety or identity crises, etc. So it's really interesting that absolutely I hear and acknowledge and I agree the Bai Māori, Fu Māori approach, um, but I think that's one component of this picture. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a pretty pressing component, though, when you look at the stats, but, but I agree that that's why that 70-20-10 is more nuanced when it comes to mental health issues because we know that can cross the whole 100%. My point really is that the risks are higher Yes, where there is more material hardship. Yeah, I, I hear you. It's interesting because I was researching before we spoke and especially around this issue around maternal well-being, you know, let's start children's lives off the best we can. And uh, Andrew Little was speaking on the government's response to maternal mental health. He spoke mm -hmm. about some 270-odd uh, million that had been invested in uh, maternal mental health, but his target group were the extremely at-risk, high-risk individuals. And I, I absolutely acknowledge that those in high risk need support and care, but I wonder if we keep looking through that lens, whether we keep looking at the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, our response to this, rather than a widespread, sweeping, preventative, proactive, how do we put really good support systems in for everybody so that we can grow good well-being for our children, for our families across the board? Yeah, and I absolutely acknowledge that too. And to say that there is our priority areas does not mean that we should drop the ball in other areas that are less obvious. And everything, I mean, all the research is the first thousand days and now probably the 
nine months before the first thousand days are just yeah. crucial, absolutely yeah. crucial. And you know, again, we talk a good game about that in New Zealand, but we could do so much better. I mean, there was a time that Plunkett could guarantee twenty visits in the first two years of life of a mm. child. Now it's two. Yeah. And we're working hard with the World Child Tamariki Ora mm. uh, process to provide good assessments and checkups. But I think it needs they need to be a lot deeper with the ability to be a lot more comprehensive mm. as well at the same time. And I I mean, what could be more important than meaningful and genuinely effective early support? Mm. I mean, that's in a sense where the battle's won and lost. I saw that in the youth court. Mm. You know, I saw saw young people in their teenage years who were struggling with really a truckload of issues, all of which could be traced back to those early years. Mm. And that's why I took this job, because I thought that there was a real opportunity to bring about change at the start rather than be, in a sense, the ultimate ambulance at the bottom of the cliff as a judge. In looking at your time as the Children's Commissioner, and I know that your role has been extended to the middle of this year, if I'm accurate in my in my research, and, and that perhaps it will then be extended again. Uh, for, for you, what what are your what are your goalpost achievements that you have seen that you are proud of that that you really have observed and witnessed change so far? Yeah, I mean. The Kumara doesn't tell of its own sweetness, and success is seldom the work of the one. Mm. And anywhere I, where I can point to real pleasure that there's been improvement, there's been a multitude of people involved. Sure. Never just one. But, I mean, I, I look at the way child poverty is now front and centre a national, nationwide concern. That wasn't mm. always the case. And the previous Children's Commissioner, a paediatrician, Russell Wills, really led the charge there. Mm. But that's now accepted cross-party. There's child poverty reduction legislation. There are targets that are published and measured. There's cross-party agreement. A new breed of political leaders, our Prime Minister and the then Simon Bridges, Leader of the Opposition, forged, I think, a really helpful compact that means that's taken out of the political agenda. I mean, we're mm. putting well-being of children front and centre. We're the Prime Minister. He says well-being is a key issue. We've got a child and youth well-being strategy. Mm. It's not a deficit strategy. It's got six key areas where we want to see improvement, starting in, in home and in education mm. and in being loved and safe, about feeling connected, accepted, respected. I think it's a terrific strategy. No one else in the world has really got mm. a comprehensive child and youth well-being strategy as we have got, and that's often misunderstood. I mean, in youth justice, I'm really pleased that we are now including most 17-year-olds in the youth justice system. Mm. And boy, did we campaign as hard as we could for that. I am really glad that we are looking at dispensing with the outmoded or the outmoded residential model of care for care and protection and youth justice. I mean, why would we continue with segregating from mainstream and aggregating those children from the most troubled backgrounds together? Mm. I mean, it just makes such a it's such a difficult environment for there to be real rehabilitation. And we know from the Royal Commission into Abuse and State Care is a high risk of that happening too. So I'm really pleased to see changes there. I'm pleased that 
Oranga Tamariki is having to face really clearly how we can deliver better for Māori children, given that 69% of those in care identify as Māori. Mm. And I think that it is a big step forward. Then on top of that, I mean, there's issue after issue where I just feel so pleased, like banning smoking in cars where there are adults. Mm. Free school lunches now for, and the government's done a great job. It's, it's sort of unknown that there's there's going to be decile one to four schools. By the end of the year, the aim is to have every one of those children getting a nutritious free school lunch at a time when we know that Nutrition's a major issue. Tooth decay is huge. Issues with obesity. And we know that mental health development's directly uh, influenced by good food. Well, to think that at the birthright of every New Zealand child, one day could be a good, nutritious, free school lunch and breakfast too. That's terrific. So we've been involved in all those areas. You get me started, I can't stop. Please, pursuits. And that's recently changed. Sure. I mean, there's been a rejigging of the policy. Accidents have decreased. The last three months since it started, deaths and injury have decreased. That's great. I mean, I, I'm just so pleased to see a better focus on children and young people. And government departments themselves are wanting to hear from children and young people. That's That, I would say, is one of our big achievements. Policymakers want to hear from children and young people. Now, you ask, once the tap's turned on, it's hard to stop it. But I'm, I'm encouraged. I think we're, in a, we're on the dawn of a new era for child-focused policy, and government department after government department are saying, how can we hear children's voices better? Well, it's On interesting. Note, my, my, my quest, my, I had two questions in my mind, really, and the first one was going to be a, you know, by nature, Andrew, I am an optimistic person. I have belief in governments and I believe that most people want to do right and want to do well by others and that, you know, we, we do want to work together to shift this and I had a question around, I now have a sense of despair in this area because I hear words, but I don't see action on the ground. And I was going to ask you how, whether you ever personally have that feeling too, and maybe you can answer that second. But I suppose what you're saying is, Jackie, maybe we need to be stopping and looking at what is shifting and changing. And even though it might not be uh hardline shifts on the ground right now we're doing the pre-work for that we're getting the policies and strategies in place we're putting this front and center we're starting to to measure and and report back on statistics on children's well-being on children's poverty that hasn't been done before you know take a proactive positive look rather than looking at the deficits perhaps that's what you're saying (laughs) it is what i'm saying Yeah. yeah it is what i'm saying and the day i'm not if not optimistic, at least committed to the belief that not only can we do better, that we're beginning to do better, the day that I cease to believe that is the day that I end my role. There's no point being in this role if you've got a completely deficit assumption. I mean, there are massive issues facing New Zealand children, but at the same time, some of our children do world-leadingly well. Mm. That's the conundrum in New Zealand. How is it in a country? That, for instance, does so well for our elderly, one of the best in the world. We've committed to that. Why couldn't we bring that same commitment to children? And we did. Mm. I mean, the state of children in New Zealand that we're talking about now, that didn't just happen gradually. It really happened bang, boomfa, in the late 80s, early 90s. The graph goes up in so many areas, including youth suicide then. I mean, we dropped the ball. We believed in a trickle-down theory that in the end, our big GDP and wage growth will benefit all children. Wrong. It didn't Mm. happen. 
we've really got a almost permanent group of chronically disadvantaged families, whānau and children, and we could change it. We did it for the over-65s. We could do it for the under-18s. There's no country in the world that stands out as doing so well for one group and so badly for the other. Our ratio is about, about six times worse for children than it is for the elderly. No other country does that. They give priority to both. Somehow, we have simply not prioritised children. We said we've had, and we've been, we're, we're talking the right time, but we haven't done it. But I do sense a change, Jackie. That's why I'm enthused about. So I if mean, you were to have your wish list, if you were able to, uh, the, the wrong word is play God, the right word is to have major influence. If you were able to come in and, and, and wave a magic wand and to have a, priority hit list for what would prioritise our under 18-year-olds, for what would help with uh, poverty and material hardship, for what would support their home and whānau, their school, their friends, their community, what would you be doing, Andrew? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I approached this interview looking at mental health and wellbeing, but bang, we have suddenly just exploded into much wider areas, in a sense, you can't talk about mental health and well-being without talking about those issues. But well, I think me, they all I'd, feed into mental health yeah, and well-being. Yeah, they're all interrelated. I guess I'd have to say, being true to our our current position, benefits that were slashed in 1991 have never been made up. That's when I think it all went wrong. So that's and, 30 years of deficit. Correct. Now, the good thing is they're now linked to wage growth. So they're indexed linked like superannuation. So it won't get any worse, but we've got a big deficit to make up, 30 years of it. The Welfare Expert Advisor Group said all benefits, especially for children, have to increase from 22 to 44%. Mm. I mean, we can't get away from that. Big, bold, courageous change is needed. The government started it. I'm really hopeful that it will continue it but it can't be one-off. So I do think that is a good starting point. I think some in-kind benefits, free free healthcare to the age of 18 for every New Zealand child, free school lunch for every child would be a great start too. Mm. I think there are some clear issues that we could be prioritising. And if I extrapolate from that, and I know your research will show this, but I'm going to take an educated guess, when you have poverty in, in the home, when you've got a financial deficit, you have parents that are potentially working multiple jobs, you have children that are perhaps having to fend for themselves earlier than they would, uh, you've got lack of support around supporting homework or helping children problem solve or emotionally regulate or, you know, you've got, you've got families under the strain when the basic needs aren't there and therefore you see the topple on effect uh, when parents are stretched and strained. Couldn't agree more. And as it were, the tentacles of child poverty reach out into every area of a child's life. I mean, why do we have such high rates of rheumatic fever in New Zealand? Mm-hmm. And that's an absolute... It's shameful. <laughs> yeah, it's shameful. In a Western world country, we shouldn't have it. Mm-hmm. Our high rates of suicide that we've talked about. Why do we have such poor achievement rates for, say, uh, NCA level two? Why have we got such high rates of abuse and neglect? You can't say it's all determined by material hardship and 
poverty of families where there are children, but it certainly increases the risk. And the theory is that in that in all those areas that we've talked about, when material well-being and disadvantage is addressed, there is improvement in all those areas. Mm-hmm. There's not following days. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that will be the case. We shouldn't be able to, I mean, this is fixable in New Zealand. We can fix it. The real question, and we've got the resources. Even with COVID, we have the resources. But will we do it? That's the question in the end of will. Mm. And, and it's interesting because during your during lockdown, the Children's Commission, Commission, um, Commission looked at well-being, and you found that well-being went up. And so I think there are some there are some learnings from that. What did you find in terms of what children were saying about why their mental health and well-being had improved? What do we need to be taking from those lessons uh, and implementing going forward? Yeah, I think one of the big lessons that we learned was that the burden of COVID wasn't equally shared. And those who were doing okay beforehand did even better. I mean, parents had more time to spend with their children and vice versa. Children said time and time again how much relationships had improved during COVID. Mm. And it's a bit glib to say it, but love is a four-letter word spelt T-I-M-E. And we weren't prepared for how many children said how much we valued and appreciated and loved spending time with our caregivers Mm. and with our family. But equally, for that 10%, that 20% we talked about earlier, for them there were some real struggles. Tension was even greater. Conflict within the family was Mm. greater. For those children, some of them couldn't, in a sense, get out of lockdown and out of the family fast enough. Mm. And same for education. I mean, there was a digital divide. Went to a secondary school in Auckland where about a quarter of the students had no access to online learning. For them, it was a disaster. But for those who had access to computers and the web, I mean, many thrived. It was a better learning experience for them. But, yeah, we the survey was was one before lockdown and one straight after lockdown. We were surprised, for instance, that there was a difference between decile ratings in the school when it came to uh, I can cope when life gets hard. Everyone at secondary school found that tough. Mm. Everyone found it worse during COVID. In terms of I feel fit Did and healthy. Did primary age children get worse with that, Andrew? Yep. Across the board. Across the board. But when it came to something like I feel fit and healthy, the lower decile schools, more people said they didn't feel fit and healthy. Mm. But nearly a quarter in the decile 5 to 10 range said they did feel fit and healthy, more fit and healthy. Mm. So there was an improvement there. There was a real difference too in opportunities to build skill and knowledge for the future. Those in the higher decile areas, students there felt COVID advantaged them. Those in the lower decile schools clearly disadvantage them. I get to do fun activities in my spare time. I mean, nearly 20% more in the higher decile areas said, yes, that's true. Mm. But nearly 10% in the lower decile schools said, no, I get less time to do fun activities. So, Mm. I mean, COVID didn't hit all children the same. Mm. Well, it sounds like it amplified the divide that's already existing in our society. 
absolutely. And there were some surprising advantages. And what was interesting is that the Victoria University sort of policy did a survey of adults, and it was pretty replicated for the adults too. Mm. Not only did children say they liked spending time with their caregivers, but caregivers enjoyed spending time with their children, Mm. particularly those in areas where they had jobs Mm. and had money coming in. So, yeah, COVID really was a was a, a microscope on how well New Zealand was doing. And it's now provided all the evidence we need to do better. It can't be an excuse to do less. It's actually an opportunity to do more. Mm. We know where the target areas are even more clearly. Mm. I mean, for instance, why do we have a policy where you get a tax benefit for going back to work as a mother who's just had a child when all the policy evidence is nothing beats a continuous, uninterrupted relationship with a newborn and their mother. Mm. But yet the economic policy says it's great to get out working. So you get an in-work tax credit for being in work. Yeah. But it's bad for children. And attachment. (laughs) Yeah, bad for attachment. So we've got Mm. some work to do in getting our our policies to match the modern science. Well, it's interesting in some countries in Europe, for example, how long that paid parental leave occurs for after a mother has had a baby. And I was actually speaking to a Russian clinical psychologist once who says the government recommends that a mother has a child every five years so that every child gets five years of close contact with the mother and then when one goes off to school the mother has time to spend that care and attention on the next and I thought wow isn't that just so different to how we think and live and are um, supported here in New Zealand. Yeah and in some areas we lead the world with children Mm. and in other areas we are right at the bottom, youth Mm. suicide being one of those. Mm. So if I try and pull the tentacles of this conversation together we have a pandemic around youth mental health in this country right now. And as you say, it may be the critically defining uh, issue or area of our time in terms of how we support our children, how we support, support them to be mental, mentally healthy and well. Um, we have underlying that a complexity of issues that would lead to that, including poverty, including uh, child support uh, reforms needing to uh, occur, including uh, inequality in our in our society, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have healthcare systems that are potentially geared towards taking that three percent or focusing on the three percent of those that are very unwell. But what are we seeing in the in society that is that preventing? proactive care is going to really put the buffers in place so that we grow and develop resilient uh, adults that can emotionally regulate, that can think clearly for themselves, that can make good decisions uh, to go forward. We have a need for a, a by Māori, for Māori approach for our seriously disadvantaged when we take that 70-20-10 split, um, that yes, whilst most of us, 70% of us are doing well, we have some really, really vulnerable groups here in New Zealand that are now intergenerationally suffering and they need extra care and attention above the wider population. When we take all of that together, Andrew, plus the what you say are the good bits, we've got lunches going into schools, we've got better dental care occurring. You know, we, we, we can see some real progress in the children's wellbeing space in terms of in your time in office what's been occurring. What would your message be to the psychology community? What's your leading message to 
a family that are really struggling with the mental health and well-being of their of their child and they don't know how or where to get support you know what do we what do we leave people with as they go forward yeah can I say your summary was just a beautiful encapsulation of what we've talked about. Come and get a job in our office, Jackie. Help Thanks. us out. I mean, that's, that's, at 30, a, that's at 34 weeks pregnant, so I'll take that. <laughs> well, that is a wonderful summary. I think, you know, we, we've we got a – there was a T-shirt I saw of a young boy overseas, and it said two things. It said – both quotes from Martin Luther King uh, – I may not be able to do the big things, but I've got to do the small things well. Mm-hmm. And I think for all of us, and I'm talking to psychologists, I think doing our work well to a high standard individually provides hope. It was Graham Greene who said there's every moment, there's always a moment in a child's life when an adult can turn the key and open the door to the future. And for me, that was a speech therapist and psychologist when I had a very debilitating stutter in my early, all all my life really, and in my early Mm. years as a lawyer. And as a teenager, one speech therapist genuinely opened the door. I mean, colleagues at Rongatai College, friends think I've got a twin. They could never have imagined me talking in this way. Mm. And don't underestimate the power of good interventions and good help from psychologists. I mean, you can change lives, but there's also a structural element because that same T-shirt talked about if you're silent when there is inequality and inequity, you're taking the side of the oppressor. I mean, psychologists are an enormously powerful group. I mean, they know the link, for instance, between poor nutrition and mental health. Mm. When there's a lot that psychologists could be doing, don't underestimate the the respect with which you and your profession are held. Mm. I would love to see more joined up systemic advocacy for change. Mm. And in it all, I'd say myself, I've learned a terrific amount in this job about listening to children and hearing their voices. It's not just a passing fad. It ought to be foundational to hear from children. I mean, to her credit, Minister Polly, when she was reforming child, youth and family daughter on the Tamariki, put together a group of care-experienced children. What were the big issues, they asked them. They said, number one, if we have to be removed, why do you separate us as brothers and sisters? Why can't we be kept together? You know, and all the work that was going on, the policy analysts had never thought about sibling unity as being a legal principle, believe it or not. Well, you you wonder who's making the policy and how much life experience they've had in that area. It is now, and it's there because children raised it. And Minister Mm. Polly said that's got to change. So I think for all of us and all our work, we've got to be finding ways of ensuring that we hear children's voices. We can ask children, what are your issues? What are your perspectives? Where do you stand? How can we do better? We won't always be able to do what they say, but we certainly have to hear what they say and report back to them as to what we've done about it. And one of the, as I say, the key voices up and down the country that I hear is that our mental health and well-being is at risk and it's worrying us and we need help. And getting in contact with the local DHB or a GP to say, get me some help, help me with a good psychologist or, or, or counsellor I think that is an untapped resource. Mm. Up to see your people, and they probably are absolutely swamped. They are totally, 
they yeah. are and I suppose that's how I'd like to leave this conversation with you Andrew which is from me and I, and I can't say I represent every clinical psychologist in, in New Zealand because I don't um, but my hope and I think a flavour from the community is if we were to put our wishes to you in your office it would be can we really work hard to start at the start and to be that pro- proactive approach? Can we work to get our health and well-being mandated in education? So emotion regulation, so forming good relationships, etc., is taught in a consistent manner from ECE. You can teach emotion regulation to kindy kids. Can we have parenting courses as common as antenatal classes birth is all of 12 hours and you go to an eight-week course parenting is a lifetime and where's the you know where are the consistent courses in that you know can we really work together so that we are not jammed in our offices so we're not fighting with DHBs to get people into secondary service so that we're working together proactively to help people form the good life and to live the good life rather than focusing on that on that critical end where people are in crisis that's what my a, hope what a, what a terrific challenge and i hope our office is up to that i mean everything you say resonates and uh like i say if you have an opportunity to have a platform for that sort of thing grab it for all your worth Hey, thank you so very much for your time, Andrew. I've really appreciated talking with you. And as some just personal feedback from me to you, I've always valued your honesty every time you speak uh, with the New Zealand media and to us as the public. You're not afraid to say what you think and to uh, say what needs to be said. And sometimes that feels very rare. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking and a big encouragement. And I hope I take your words out into the community. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm Jackie Maguire, and you've just listened to the Children's Wellbeing in Aotearoa episode of Mind Brew. I sincerely hope you found the conversation insightful and genuine, and that it has helped you percolate on that all-important initial question. Is New Zealand the best place in the world for our children to grow, develop and thrive? Before I leave you to go and snuggle and appreciate my children, let me leave you with a quote from Nelson Mandela. There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. Aotearoa, what's in our soul? If you enjoyed this episode of Mind Brew, please share this episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you and have a good day.